Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Octopulse, our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. I'm assistant sports editor Mark Faulkner with Ted Colfin, our Red Wings beat reporter. Coming up, we have an interview with Manon Riome, the first female NHL player. But first, Ted, some breaking news on NHL free agency day number two. The Red Wings signed goaltender Thomas Grice. He's 34, six foot two, 230 pounds, 10 years of NHL experience with San Jose, Arizona, Pittsburgh. Last season with the Islanders, he played 31 games with a 16-9 and 4 record and a 9-13 save percentage. Ted, you were expecting a move like this. What do you make of the move for Grice? No, I always felt going into this whole market that he was I mean, he was probably one of the guys that the Wings were targeting. I thought he would, and I think he will, form a nice complement with Jonathan Bernier. Uh, They're both, you know, on the surface, both very capable professional goalies. Bernier played very well last season with the Wings. And Grice has always been a very steady NHL goaltender, very professional. I mean, you know what you're going to get. Probably overwork him. That's not a good thing. But I think he's going to form a very nice combo with Bernier. and certainly solidifies the, the goaltending position for the Wings, which they wanted to do. Two years, Ted, a two-year contract worth $7.2 million. Does that make sense as well? A little more, high, a little higher than I would suspect they would need it to have gone, but just shows you you never know with this market. I mean, you can never can tell. Interested to see what happens with Jonathan Bernier going forward. Do they re-sign Bernier after this coming season. There's really nobody in the system that's any close, so I think you might see a Bernier-Grice tandem here for at least the next few years, maybe. We'll see. Ted, the Wings also added two players yesterday, right winger Bobby Ryan from the Ottawa Senators and defenseman John Merrill from the Vegas Golden Knights. Last year, Steve Eiserman added Valtteri Filpola from the New York Islanders and Patrick Nemeth from the Colorado Avalanche. Two safe, low-risk, low-maintenance, defensive-minded players. How do Ryan and Merrill stack up compared to last year? You know, Mark, it's pretty similar. I mean, they're looking for these short-term veterans who can provide a good example for the younger players uh, and make the team frankly, more competitive. And I think Ryan and Merrill have a good chance of doing that. Ryan's looking to resuscitate his career. I think he has a good chance of doing that here. Uh, They plan, it seems like they're planning on playing him as a top six forward. He still has one of the better shots in the NHL. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he'll be very, very motivated to show people he's still a big time player in the NHL. So he's got to, I think, I think, it could be a fit that fits both sides. And if he gets off to a nice start and he contributes, there you go, Mark. Maybe there's another possibility of another player you can flip at the trade deadline for a good draft picks. And Iserman's always been on record here the last couple of years if he wants to accumulate as many draft picks as he can and just add more young players to the organization. So I think, like I said, I think the Ryan pick and the Ryan signing in particular has mm-hmm. a uh, really do good for the wings here in the short term. Ted, you were also uh, mentioning uh, in one of your stories recently that the 
Red Wings would now have 10 UFAs coming up at the trade deadline. So Ryan and Merrill, Bernier, Biega, yeah. Nemeth, Stahl, Gagne, Glenn Denning, Filippola, and Helm. And then you also said that the contract of Franz Nielsen will be up soon. They could buy him out as well. So there's a lot of players. Adam Ernie's another one who's restricted. But, you know, unless he shows big-time progress, he could be in non-qualified next summer. So, yeah, Mark, I mean, there's without a doubt, there's an opportunity there to really reshape and revamp this roster in Steve Eiserman's image. Because, uh, frankly, out of those 10 to 12 players, mm-hmm. how many of those people do you really see with a long-term future in Detroit? Maybe they re-signed Luke Lendenning for a couple more years. I think I could see them doing that. But other than that, I don't think there's a very many people on that list that's here for the duration. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot more new faces on this roster in the next year or two. Ted, you talked to a number of uh, experts about how the Wings are strengthening the system but still have a long ways to go. You talked to Ryan Kennedy of the Hockey News, EJ Raddick of the NHL Network, and Kyle Woodluff of the Redline Report. How long do you think fans have to wait before players like Lucas Raymond and others uh, end this playoff drought, which is at four years right now? Yeah, see, that's the thing, Mark. I mean, there is reason for optimism. I mean, there's definitely some potential there. Some good young players who look like they could become NHLers in the future. But that's the thing. It's still in the future. I mean, I think everybody's predominant opinion is this situation is still a good two, three years. That's just, that's just my number, but at least two or three years of, you know, I don't hate to say status quo, but it's still a significant ways away from being a, a playoff contending organization. I mean, you still have to see a lot more talent being brought into the varsity level, but there's hope. I mean, everybody seems to think, there are players here in these last two drafts who could contribute in the future, have star potential. So maybe there is a slight headed, slight light there in the, in the distance to see. Ted, just two more notes about free agency. Tori Krug from Livonia, a possible target for the Red Wings, signed with the Blues, seven years, $45.5 million. He said he wasn't even close to staying in Boston and that there was very little communication. Yeah, that's a strange one, Mark. I really, going into this thing, I really thought when push comes to shove that those two sides would come together. I mean, he just seemed like he was the perfect Boston Bruin and he was there his entire career and he just fit the mold of that organization. But I don't know, it leaves your head scratching a little bit. I just don't understand how they didn't come to sides because mm-hmm. like, there was a significant difference between what maybe one extra year the Blues tacked on and evidently the Bruins just didn't want to match that. Uh, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see going forward. And Ted, Tyler Johnson cleared waivers this morning. We're recording this Saturday just before Thomas Grice will talk to you, the media, at 1 p.m. Any surprises there about Tyler Johnson and what happens next? Uh, I, don't, I don't think too many people were surprised, Mark. I mean, he's just a, as good a player as he is. Well, some people will say was. I mean, four years remaining on that deal, I think the average hit is around $5 million a year. I don't think the actual money is that quite high, but still, you're talking about a good player whose st- statistics have been declining here of late. 
He's not an overly big guy. Big guy. Um, I don't know. It's, that's a tough sell. I mean, I think somebody might be interested if you give them a little sweet, if Tampa gives them a draft pick to go along with, with taking on his contract. I think there might be a possibility of maybe a team with some cap space. I doubt it would be the Red Wings, but maybe maybe like a Buffalo or mm-hmm. Ottawa would be a good fit maybe for one year. And if you have some sort of arrangement there where you put Johnson on, an ex, on the expansion list, I think, from my humble opinion, I think an expansion team like Seattle would be very, very interested in adding on Johnson, who's from Tacoma or Spokane, I believe. So he's from the general, definitely from the general area mm. there. Yeah. I think it'd be a nice addition, nice, nice addition for Washington. It'd be a home, homegrown kid. Well, he wouldn't be a kid at that point, but he'd still only be 31 or 32. And he'd be, I think he'd be the type of guy who'd be a really good guy to wear a C for an expansion team like Seattle. So I've heard that idea proposed here in the last 48, 72 hours. And I think that makes sense. So I don't know, maybe a Buffalo or man, I doubt it would be the wings, maybe an Ottawa. I know Ottawa still needs to make significant additions just to get to the cap floor. If you have Tyler Johnson for a year, basically mm-hmm. out, and then just work out an arrangement where you would leave him exposed. I think a team, an expansion team like Seattle would be very interested in him. Coming up, we'll review the Red Wings draft, but first, our interview with Manon Riome, the first female NHL player. Joining us now is Manon Riome, the first female to play in an NHL exhibition game, and now the girls' program coordinator at Little Caesars and the coach of the four-time champion under-12 team. Mano, welcome to the podcast. I spoke with Brian Rolston, the former Stanley Cup champion with the New Jersey Devils and the director of Little Caesars Hockey. And I asked Brian what type of coach you are, and he talked about your energy and, and your commitment to skill development with some of the youngest players in your program, even puck possession and being creative, having fun and then winning. What's it been like coaching the last four years and developing skills of young female hockey players here in Detroit? You know, I have to say I do have a passion for coaching. I'm doing a lot of other things, but when it comes to coaching, I I really enjoyed that part of it, um, to be part of like a young girl's journey to make them better, but not just on the ice and off the ice and teach them life lesson along the way. Um, That's Pretty much my favorite thing to do in this job. <laughs> well, you talked about early on that if you hadn't been a goaltender, you may have wanted to be a teacher. And indirectly, a lot of coaches, they've been teachers, and that's their passion. Is that something that now you're getting the chance to do now that your, your hockey playing career is over, Minnow? Absolutely. And, you know, I think from being a goalie, you see a lot of goalies being coaches now because all your life you see the game in front of you. So your vision for the game, um, it's sometimes different than other position when you Mm -hmm. play. So uh, for me, uh, that really helped me. I may not have been a defense or forward and done all that stuff, but uh, the, the fact that I saw the play in front of me all my life um, and knowing like what, it's hard for me when a forward come against me or how I like my defense to play in front of me. So mm-hmm. now I'm able to teach all of that to the players. 
You know, Mano, I hadn't thought about that. Goaltenders and in other sports, like the catcher who sees everything in front of him and, and, and the goaltender as well. So when you were playing goal, you you probably did you did you think that that was something that you you had to know what everyone else was doing, or were you only worried about yourself? Oh no, you you need to see like the goalie mm-hmm. has to have a different vision. Like your vision, you need to be able to see what's around you while watching the puck. Sure. Um, and, and I think that really helped. Like now I play as a forward, and one of my biggest strength as a forward when I play for fun, it's I'm able to see who's around me <laughs> while I'm watching the puck, and it really comes from being a goalie. Who were some of your best coaches, man? Oh, your dad was a huge influence, of course. You grew up in Quebec. You played some midget hockey in the Three Rivers area. You played for Terry Crisp briefly at training camp in Tampa Bay. Eight different teams in four minor leagues. You played for Shannon Miller with the Canadian national team. Won two world championships, silver medal at the 1998 Olympics in Nagano. But who were some of the coaches, when you look back, who uh, certainly had an influence on your coaching now, your style? You know, the the different thing with back then, um, when I was younger, we didn't have goalie coach, really. So Mm -hmm. your coach, you were learning basically the game by yourself. And that's why you see the style of play, the way we play back then compared to now, where all those young goalies has specific private goalie coach and they, they really work on their techniques. So when I was younger, I may have gone to a couple of goalie camps which is a week long it's not enough to really learn the position so you were basically mm-hmm. you know your own coach and most of the coach were parents and dads and they may have not played a position either so um, I think the time that I learned the most um, about the position it's different goalies that I play with when I was playing pro uh, learning from them watching them and doing different goalie drills with them at the end of practice and those were, um, you know, the time that I, I was able to learn the most. Um, with the national team, I think we started getting a little bit more uh, goalie coach. But by the time uh, the national team, the 98 Olympics, that was the first Olympics, we still didn't have like all the coaching that now hmm. the national team has. Mano, I just interviewed recently a Russian goalie, Alex Tiznich, who was the backup to Vladislav Tretiak. So it was Tretiak and Tiznich. And they didn't have goalie coaches either. They came up with ideas like you did, like what can we do off ice to train ourselves? And they came up with drills. And of course now it's evolved, but really when you think about what you guys had to do and even, even in the NHL, of course, back then it really was, uh, you've written a documentary or your autobiography about being alone in front of the net. But (laughs) really back then when Chisnitz and Trechiak, they were on their own. Yeah, and you were on your own, and me being a female, not only I was on my own on the ice, uh, but off the ice, I had my own locker room, and when we would go (laughs) on the road, I was roommate by myself, and it was just a lot of, like, lonely time, but I have to say, every time I stepped on the ice, that was the place, that was my happy place, so that's when I was, like, smiling and enjoying myself, and I think this is why I I love coaching so much now. Menno, how would you describe your game back then? We've all watch some video when you became the first female goalie to play in the NHL you were listed as 5'6 130 Uh, your skating looked really good the lateral movement quickness but when you look back now at what you were facing uh, both against the men and the women 
Um, how would you describe your style? I, I would say a little bit more like Marty Brunner. Okay. <laughs> Where standing up and, you know, you just, at first, like I said, we, I never had a coach. So technically, when I started in the pro, it's more from what I learned myself in being quick. And I think what my biggest strength was is my mental toughness. Okay. And I felt like I was able to put myself in a, in a place that, you know, like my best game would be pressure game or when I had no choice to perform. And I look back at the camp in Tampa Bay, the first time I stepped on the ice, we started right away with a small tournament. And I knew that was one of the biggest moments um, of the training camp because mm -hmm. everybody was watching to see what she's going to do. And the players, the, the media that was in the stand and that game was probably the most pressure game. Uh, that was just a mini tournament between uh, our own players. And um, I did not allow any goal in that first game. And, and truly it was a, <laughs> the mental state that I was um, that made me be able to perform like this that first game. And I would say that was my biggest strength. And then along the way, I think as, after I started playing professional hockey and I was around great goaltender and, and I started like the butterfly style start mm -hmm. coming along with the Patrick Waugh and all the other great goalies that use the butterfly style. So I kind of transitioned to that style. So by the time I think I was in the Olympics in 98, I had like a mix of a butterfly style and okay. still have some of the Marty, uh, Marty Brothers style too. So between those two, I would say that was a mix of both. Mano, you just talked about mental toughness, which is really interesting. Where did it come from? Did you think you had it in you? I just interviewed Marco Rossi, the OHL leading scorer, and he talked about his mental toughness growing up in Austria and Switzerland and how his dad would drive him for hours to practices. His dad lost his job a couple of times. But Marco said, I have mental toughness, and I learned it early. You develop yours, and the story is pretty well documented. And there are movies coming out and a book that we'll talk about as well that'll be available on October the 20th. But when did you realize or what mental toughness was or how does it's just interesting how how you seem pretty self-aware that you had it. But how does that happen? It really I, I would say it's uh this story with my dad uh, when my brother was playing at the rink and uh, obviously no other girl were playing. So I was the only girl playing. Uh, I sure. was at home and my brother always used to dress me as at home as a goalie and shoot pucks at me in the backyard. And one day my dad was at the dinner table and um, he said to my mom, uh, we're going to a tournament and they were rotating their goalies, but nobody's showing interest of playing goalie for a tournament that was coming up. Yeah. And he said, I don't know which kid I'm going to pick and to go and play in that. And I look at my dad and I said, why not me? I do it for my brother all <laughs> the time here. And at first he was not sure. And when he, they agree him and my mom to let me do this, um, so he said to me, like, before we go practice on the ice with the, the team, um, we're going to practice in the basement. I remember him, I was dressed as a goalie in the basement and one of the first few pockets shot, I got one of my shoulder and it really hurt. Mm -hmm. And I went down and my dad looked at me and the first thing he said to me, he said, get used to it. And I look up at him and he said, if you want to do knitting, it's not going to hurt. But if you're going to play hockey, sometimes the puck's going to hurt. So get used to it. 
So I think at that moment, I knew that if I wanted to do this sports and being the only girl with a group of guys that I'm going to have to be tough. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that moment that my mindset changed. And every time I went to a training camp, every time I played a game, every time I was dealing with pressure and things like that, I had that mindset that I know it's not going to be easy. But if you want to do this, just mm-hmm. get used to it. So it was really okay. like that. I think a turning point for me. You mentioned uh, your brother, Pascal, and Brian Rolston. Uh, <laughs> Brian knows your brother, of course. They were in the Devils, they were in the Devils organization at the same time. And, and that's when Brian said he first met you. And he was just as astonished being a first-round pick, 1991, 1992 is when you played. He couldn't believe what you were accomplishing. And now, of course, you've gotten to know him a little bit. Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, Pascal, who played in the NHL, and, uh, and, and what it was like maybe, I mean, here he has his older sisters making all these headlines. What, what, what's it, what was it like back then with your brother? You know, me and my brother, because we were a year apart, so we would play together on the same team one year, and the following Mm -hmm. year I was moving up, and so we got the chance to play a lot together when we were younger. And um, when we play major junior, uh, that was on the same team too. So he got to experience being part of my team when I play my first game in major junior. And then when I got invited to Tampa Bay, my brother never got drafted in the NHL, but he got invited to New Jersey. And I remember that moment, we, we were both going to camps <laughs> at the same time. And my dad went with my brother and my mom came with me and in a different place. But we both experienced this at the same time. And even oh. if for him, his story was he was just an invited player, never got drafted. And he made, obviously, not the first year because they returned him to the junior, but he eventually um, went to play in Albany, the minor leagues, and made the NHL. Okay. Uh, he won a Calder Cup in Albany, won a Stanley Cup with the Devils. So I always used to joke at first people were saying, oh, your sister, your sister this. And then when he won the Stanley Cup, I said, now I can say my brother just won a Stanley Cup. <laughs> exactly, a Stanley Cup champion. That would have been really interesting, your parents going one way and one the other. So that those were really exciting times for the Realm family. Um, now I'd like to move on and talk to you about Angie Bellara, who has written this book about your life, Breaking the Ice, uh, children's book coming out um, on October the twentieth. What's that book like, um, Mano? You know the the idea behind the book. First of all, I met Angie. Uh, she contacted me a few years ago, and uh, she wanted to meet me because she's a movie producer. She's an actress. She writes children books, and um, she said to me, "I my next project, I want a movie uh, with a female lead, and I want to be able to inspire people." So when I met her, first of all, I look at her and what kind of look like. <laughs> Every time we're together, people mm-hmm. think we're sisters. Um, and really when she told me all of this and the biggest thing, when she said she wants to inspire people, um, I decided to, uh, you know, to join the project because what I didn't realize when I was in Tampa Bay and doing all this, it, that my story inspired people. And it took me years to figure that out and realizing that, and it's probably become the most satisfying part of what I did. Um, that I was able to inspire people. So to be able to continue to do that with the movie and then while she was working with the script of the movie, 
um, she was doing some other children book and um, then the idea with Simon and Schuster came up to do the children book about my story um, which to me uh, obviously I love working with young girls with young boys in hockey and teaching mm -hmm. them so uh, to be able to do a children book that's going to inspire young people and not just about hockey and that's that's been one of the coolest thing to hear some of uh, the people that wrote the book and they said you know this is not just a hockey story it's a story about someone that has passion for something um and never give up and breaking barriers and went after her dream even if all the odds was against her and that's kind of what i'm trying to tell young people it's if you're passionate about something you work sure. hard you don't need to fit the mold of what you should look like and i think it's really important in today's world that you know you can be yourself and be successful. Did Angie get it right when you when you were reading the story because she's so interested in your career and so passionate and so involved, like you said, a, a writer, an author, a producer, an actress. When you, when you were looking at the at at the themes, like you said, breaking barriers, um, and and you were reading it for the first time, what were your thoughts? Like, did did she get it right? Oh, absolutely. And we joke about that right now. And sometimes she said, I know more about you than you know yourself. <laughs> because, you know, so many things happen in my life in hockey. And sometimes my parents remember things, you know, I, I don't remember all of it. Uh, some of the things my parents never share with me that share with her. Um, things like some of the, you know, they had to see some other parents that were not for me being a goalie. Um, some other parents were saying to them sometime, oh, she's taking the spot of one of our boys that's gonna make it to in the NHL one day. And they were mean to me sometime. But mm -hmm. they were my parents would never share those stories with me. Um, and my parents spent a lot of time with Angie too and share with her a lot of story. And sometimes she'd come <laughs> up with something like, how do you know that? And I don't know this. <laughs> so I laugh with her sometimes. She knows more about myself than I know myself. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. And is there a, is there a, a, another movie coming out? Because I think you said that you're trying to to teach Angie. You know, I don't know if you guys have already done this, over because you guys have known each other for a while. But actually, playing goal and learning how to play goal. But is there a movie in the works as well, Menno? Yes, and we're far along in that uh, process. You know, um, it's just a, it's a long process. The entire movie, we uh, always kind of make a we mirror the movie to my whole career. Like you, you go to ups and downs. It's not easy. You have to keep going and to have everything, the timing of everything. So the director with you know, the producer and the people that you're going after to, to all work together and, and everything was going very well and moving mm -hmm. forward to a point and then COVID happened and it's like totally took a step back. And so we were hoping to have everything done at the same time, the book and the movie, but obviously um, we took a step back with the movie with the situation that we're living in right now. But um, having said that, it's been like just a, a fun ride to to work together um, with those two projects. Looking back, uh, September 23rd, that'll be next Wednesday, that'll be 28 years. When you look back, there's, there's lots and lots of positives, of course, Menno, but one of your, again, your autobiography talked about being alone, the courage, uh, sexism you faced. Are there very many negatives that happened? You had that mindset and that mental toughness to handle it. But when you look back, were there things that 
maybe you're learning now when your parents are talking to Angie that uh, you look back and, and think, well, there were aspects about it that, that, weren't, that weren't that great. Oh, of course. And it's funny that uh, even the way my story got portrayed back in 92 versus now, it's mm -hmm. just from the media. It comes from two different plays. Um, you know, I remember when I was younger, a little thing that I had to face, like coaches that didn't want the girls on the team, parents that was not happy sure. to have the girls on the team because, you know, that was kind of an ego thing with their boys. Their boys should be better. Girls should not do that. Even my own grandma at first, she was not happy <laughs> to have her granddaughter play hockey. And then she was making sure like when the boys were getting the little hockey jacket, she was knitting me a sweater and a cute little hat that would match the team, but I would stay feminine. And, you know, because back then it was just not normal girls playing hockey sure. and uh, or different things like i remember you know um i made a big save to, in front of a player and he was in breakaway and we end up winning the game and at the end we would shake hands and he just punched me in the stomach and i couldn't say anything like huh. i i just had to take it and yeah and i could never be um i know my first year pro um i also had a players that you know was just not happy to have a girl uh, on the team and I, he would just shoot the puck slaps at my face every single practice and I was a rookie I was girl I was French Canadian which you know it was harder mm -hmm. because you couldn't really understand everything I just had to take it every single practice never complained stood up there um, it, so those things was you know the hardest part but the positive of all of this, it's most of the people, most of the players on my okay. team and against me were great. Most of the media was supportive, but you know, like me, when the negative comes out, it always seemed bigger <laughs> than the positive side. It's always harder to take when you have some negative situations. So those were harder, but you know, it's been all worth it. Um, I always said to one of the, most satisfying interview that I got it's with Terry Chris uh, about 20 years later after that happened and um we were on the radio he was a radio from Nashville and he admitted that at first yes. he was not really happy <laughs> having a girl in training camp but he said you know what he said everybody said it was a publicity thing but in the mini tournament Menno finished in the top of the um, goals against average and save percentage. I think I was third in all the eight goalies that was there. So mm. he said she deserved it to play. Like she earned that start and nobody talked about that. And it was really cool to hear from him 20 years, 20 after years later that I deserved it. Uh, and, and, but that's the way they was portrayed back then versus sure. now or later when it was more accepted to have a female play hockey. You know, you talked about the publicity stunt and Phil Esposito and all the good intentions and how it turned out. And when you look back 28 years, it's amazing, isn't it, Menno? Like, um, there were skeptics, but you, you took it as a, like a, an opportunity to prove yourself. And, and we talk about, like, uh, some of the biases you felt. But you, you, it was right in front of you, though, from what you're saying. It, it was pretty obvious sometimes. Yeah, it was. And as far as like this, this whole publicity thing, I know when I was younger, a lot of people said no to me because I was a girl, not because I was not good enough. So I didn't have the chance to play at the top level every year because mm -hmm. it took four years before a coach in my area said, 
I'm going to take the two best player, not the two best goalie, not, you know, if it's a male or female, I don't care. But so I, I was dealing with this every year and someone gave me a chance in major junior. And the only reason they gave me a chance is they realized that I was playing. I was in the stand actually, and the coach from Trois Rivières saw me and he was talking to me and said that he saw my game uh, uh, that I play with a woman. Uh, it was a Canadian championship and he was really mm-hmm. impressed with myself. And he started naming some of the player on his team. And I'm like, Oh, I play with him. I play against him. I play with him. But because I was a female, they never wanted to invite me in the midget AAA, which would be just before major juniors. So I had to take a different path. And when that coach realized that I was capable of facing those guys, he invited me to a practice. I remember mm-hmm. it's like, do you want to see what you can do? And I told my mom, I went back home and I said, you know what? I'm missing school Monday. I'm going to Tuagnia. <laughs> I'm going to practice with the team. And then I was able to handle those guys because I played with those guys before. And that's how they invite me to camp. But my point is... When I got to invite, get invited in Tampa Bay, I said to myself, so many times people said no to me because I was a girl. Mm-hmm. And maybe if I would have got those chances early on, it would have been pursued a different way because I would have already been playing at that level for four, sure. five, six, seven years. But now someone is giving me an opportunity. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter why they invite me. I'm still going to have to prove myself there. And I didn't want to live my life with regret and said, what if I would have done it? So I'm said, I'm going to go for it. And this is like taking a chance. And that's what I'm trying to tell the kids when I coach them. It's like, you cannot be afraid to take chance. What is the worst thing? Like I told myself, what is the worst thing that can happen? If I don't play well, they're going to say, oh, we know it's a girl. You know, she's not ready for that. So that was the worst thing that could happen. So the, when, the best thing that could happen, I think it's what happened. It's I was able to go to training camp and have a really good training camp mm-hmm. and play an exhibition game. And that exhibition game, nobody could have said that, you know, she didn't belong there because the game was 2-2 after the first period. Um, and I remember they started with a power play right away at three or four shot on a power play and I stopped them. So, um, <laughs> I was really happy with what I'd done with the experience that I had. Man, oh, just a couple of more questions. We appreciate your time today on the podcast, the hockey hall of fame. Now, Kim St. Pierre will be the first female goalie in the hall of fame. So she's in the 2020 class, uh, Haley Wickenheiser, one of Canada's greatest hockey players, played against men over in Finland. Shannon Sabatis, a goaltender as well. Have you given any thought, you've been asked this question before about the <laughs> Hockey Hall of Fame and all the goaltenders here locally from Chris Osgood to Curtis Joseph to Mike Vernon, they're all asked the same question as well. So I know you've given it a lot of thought, but certainly Kim St. Pierre, that's a huge step for female hockey in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, maybe first your thoughts about Kim and her career and have, have you given much of a thought to what, you know, you, you may have contributed in the past and maybe as a builder too, like you're, you are, you know, you're entering year five for helping out and, and, and molding other hockey players. So, so Kim St. Pierre and yourself, what are your thoughts about that in the hockey hall of fame? You know, I, I think Kim absolutely deserved to be there. She, uh, she was an amazing goaltender for team Canada. I always mm-hmm. said like, she kind of like the, the new generation of a young goaltender that, you know, had a chance to have those goalie coach. And, and like, technically she was so strong. Um, I think I read some of the things, 
think that she was working with the same coach that Patrick Wa was working oh, with. Okay. And you can tell, like, she was very strong uh, technically, and, and she was a great person too, and everybody loved her on the team. So uh, she absolutely deserved uh, to be there. She had great numbers all the years that she played with the national team. And I think that every time a woman like this, like having a first goaltender was great. And having someone like Ailey Wickenizer with everything that she did for mm-hmm. hockey and being in the Hall of Fame and Cami Grenado um, to be an Hall of Fame. And now she's a scout for the new uh, Seattle team. Those are all moments that really help continue to grow the sports and, and put women in the map and, and show that we can accomplish the same thing. Um, so uh, I think that it's great. I, I love that the fact that they're allowing women in the Hockey Hall of Fame now and that we can portray those great women that made a difference in hockey. And your possibility? What are, what are your thoughts there? Is you know what? Yeah. It would be an honor to be there. And, you know, obviously it would be a great honor to be there. But I have to say that every single woman that are there really deserve it too. So that's something that if it happened, like, that's great. And um, I think that my story was it, I was able to inspire some of maybe of those young girls. I know Kim, I heard that, you know, she looked up to me and just to know that she looked up to oh. me and she's now in a hockey hall of fame, you know, to me, it's, I did my job of being able to inspire other people. And that's kind of the reason why I wanted to be part of that book and part of the movie thing, because I feel like this is probably the most satisfying part of what I did. I didn't know that about Kim St. Pierre. And uh, yeah, I right. was, uh, they asked me to come on TV when she got oh, announced with her yeah. and I, I was talking to her. So it was really good. It was an honor for me to be part of this and to hear that. Oh, absolutely. There's something tangible because my final question or the, you know, the last theme here is back to the young girls here in Detroit and uh, in your fifth year, uh, four state champions, uh, the youngest group, the 04 and 05 birth year, that team, uh, the under 16s and half of them have NCAA commitments and, 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 and they're one of the top teams like, you know, heading into this season. Um, I guess my question is like, on one hand, you do measure success by winning. And Brian Rolson said, yes, you are teaching off ice habits and fun and skill development. But with that comes some expectations with, you know, a hockey program that's been around for over 50 years in Detroit. So what are some of your thoughts about how you're measuring your success? Because now, again, some of these girls are getting older what are your thoughts then about what you've accomplished so far with Brian Rolson and Darren Elliott and others? There's lots of support. My goal when I, they asked me to take over the program, it was to build the program from the bottom up okay. and really have an organization that works together. So every coach is at the U12, 14, 16, and 19 working together and really focus on developing the girls first uh, instead of like trying to win at all costs when you're 12 years old and do things that, yes, going to make you win games, but in the long run may not be able to develop the players. So um, that was really important for me to not sacrifice the development of the girls to win some games. And when you do that, when you really 
focus on developing the girls, the win comes with that. Okay. It may not come right away at the beginning of the year. Uh, you may lose some games because, you know, you ask the girls to not throw the puck away and, and keep the puck in their sticks and you give up breakaways and things like this. But by the end of the year, because you focus so much on developing their skills, um, you know, they become really successful with their skills and then they end up winning you know, some games. And that's something that by starting doing this at the U12 and, and continue to do so at the U14 and U16s, like the group that I started with now, they're now at the U16 and they're just an amazing team to watch, to coach, to, to see play. Uh, every time I see them, I just, because they really, really focus on those skills all those years. And now half of the team is going to be playing D1 college, you know, in a few years. And, and it's to mm-hmm. me, that's, that's being a successful program when people look up and, and even sometime we get D one college coach that's calling us. It's like, what are you guys doing? Because mm. we feel like every single one of your teams are playing like the way we want to recruit players. And to me, that's like, that's a proof that you're doing something right with that. But it, you need to be willing to sacrifice those win at first okay. um, to be able to get there. But I think eventually you get there. Mano, thank you again so much for your time today on the podcast. A reminder, we'll be handing out a book as well, a, a random draw for Breaking the Ice, and that'll be out, out on October the 20th. Thanks again for your time today, Mano. Thank you for having me. Our thanks to Manon Rion, the NHL's first NHL female player. And Ted, let's begin the day two analysis of the draft by one of your first questions to Steve Eiserman about the length of the draft, nearly eight hours. Here's Steve Eiserman. That was a long day, wasn't it? That was a long day. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we had 12 picks, so we were relatively busy through it all. So if you all stuck around through that whole thing, I commend you. Um, <laughs> and, and for the teams that might, I don't know, if, uh, five, five or six picks, it would have dragged on hard. But even, you know, whatever, we went from the, the fifth to the sixth there. You know, the first round we were – pretty busy. Um, you know, you're looking at other things, second and third, we're busy, but yeah, it's been, it's been a long day, but all things considered under the circumstance, the first time we've ever done it virtually. Um, I don't think there was many hiccups, at least, uh, technologically or technically hiccups. We got it done. Um, if we, if for whatever reason we choose or we're forced to do it again this way next year or in the future, I'm sure we'll have ways to speed it up, but overall from, I think from the club's perspective, other than the obvious that took forever today, um, I think everybody's pleased with how it went. I think we've all earned dinner. I think that's for sure. Yeah, I got mine right beside me here. So oh, you're lucky. Up real quick, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Yeah, no problem. I, I'm happy to answer any other questions. So, I, uh, you know, you guys hung around long enough. It's the least I can do. Ted, you heard Steve Eisenman there talking about perhaps changes in the future. There weren't as many technical problems, but certainly it was a long day for everybody. And although the Wings had those 12 picks, there were a lot of teams, I'm sure, that were wondering when the draft would, would eventually end. Yeah, you know, Mark, it, it was just, it was way too long. And I think that was the predominant opinion from everyone. I think everyone will give the league a pass this time around because it was so different obviously obviously this is a, usually held in an arena all 31 32 teams in the future are together on the floor 
it just seems to speed up the process. People need to catch flights. That is, that's a very underrated fact. People need to catch flights and need to get out of there. So that's why it seems to speed by within, within an arena. There were a record number of, of trades this year, but I don't think that should have sped up. It should have held up the process as much as it was. Mm-hmm. Regardless, for the Wings individually, I think it was a good day for them. They attacked down 12 total picks, I think, in the two days. They, they got players who some people think in the long run could turn out to be NHL people. They've just added more talent to the organization, and that's what Steve Eisenman's trying to do. The Wings wound up taking, yes, uh, six forwards, five defensemen, one goalie, the forwards, Theo Niederbach, Cross, Hannes, Sam Strang, Keenan Draper, Chase Bradley on defense, William Wallander, Donovan Sobrango, Emil Vero, Alex Cotton, Kyle O'Coin, and the goaltender, Jan Bedner. Here now is Chris Draper talking about what the Red Wings were looking for in day two of the draft. You know, and, and like we touched on yesterday, I, you know, probably the one thing that is is toughest to improve is is your hockey sense. Uh, you know, I think as you're growing up, you, you either have a feel for the game or you rely on something else to be a hockey player, you know, whether it's skating, whether it's physical play, um, you know, so for, for us, um, you know, with Stevie and, and obviously Pat for beak as well. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that we always talk about in our prospects is, uh, you know, hockey IQ, hockey sense, um, you know, and it's something that, uh, that, that we put a priority on. So, um, you know, we want players that can think the game. We want players uh, that can play fast. And if they think the game, you know, there, there, there's a lot of things that, that they can improve on, you know, you can improve on your skating a little bit. Um, you know, you know, you can get bigger and stronger, you can control those kind of things. So, you know, so for us, you know, that's something that, that we certainly look at. And, uh, you know, when we start talking about, you know, red wing drafts and, and red wing DNA, that's, uh, that's something that we certainly want to hit on when, when we, when we make a selection for our prospects. And Ted, any final thoughts about the Red Wings now that they've made some changes, short term, some veterans, there's a lot of players in the pipeline down the road. Any thoughts about what happens in the next week or so? I think they'd like to add on at least one more forward and defenseman if possible. I think they will look for another defenseman, especially. Um, They could use a little bit more offense, obviously, too. So I wouldn't know. I still like there's still there's still certain players out there that intrigue me. Nemet Stakhanov is one, especially. Mm-hmm. Thought he'd be a nice fit here. He's from the area, has a long relationship with Steve Eiserman. Um, but the well, I mean, it's getting picked apart slowly but surely. There's not a whole lot of players, and it's just been a very interesting market, Mark. I mean, let's face it. I mean, the the, the most of the contracts are. Short term, I think people are very much nervous about the economic landscape here going forward with because of the virus. Uh, sure doesn't seem like there's going to be very many fans in the arenas. Um, very uncertain future, and I think we're seeing that to a large extent with a lot of these contracts. Very short term, a mm. lot less money than usual, too. So in a way, it could help the Wings also because – there is a lot of cap space that they have available that will have available in the next year or two. So going forward, we'll watch. That will do it for episode 38 of Octopulse. On our next podcast, we'll hear from 
former Red Wings draft pick, a former Michigan State Spartans defenseman, and one of the NHL's best referees, Wes McCauley. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe, and Ted, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, my friend. 